From here, Luke shows how Jesus' new family quickly faced hostility from the Jerusalem leaders. With a really beautiful symmetrical design, Luke tells a tale of two temples. So God's new temple, the community of Jesus' followers, they're gathering every day in the temple courts and from house to house. Now in between those notices are two stories about Peter and the other apostles healing people in the temple courts only to get arrested by the temple leaders, followed each time by a speech of Peter claiming that Jesus is the true king of Israel. And at the center of all this is a story about Jesus' followers donating property and possessions to a common fund to help the poor which is really cool, but it seems kind of random for Luke to mention it here, until you realize that this was a practice described in the laws of the Torah and was supposed to be happening through the Jerusalem temple and its leaders. So Luke's point here is clear. The new temple of Jesus' community is fulfilling the purpose that God always intended for the Jerusalem temple, to be a place where heaven and earth meet, where people encounter God's generosity and healing presence. And this conflict between the two temples, it culminates in Acts chapter 6 and 7. It's the first wave of persecution. So Jesus' followers, they continue to multiply, requiring more leaders. And one of these, Stephen, he's a bold witness for Jesus in Jerusalem. And he ends up getting arrested and he's accused of speaking against and even threatening the temple. And so Stephen here gives a long speech showing how Israel's leaders have always rejected the messengers God sent them, including Jesus and now his disciples. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 7, verse 54, through chapter 8, verse 3. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Stephen's testimony is offensive to the Jews because it challenges their most deeply held convictions. And it's particularly offensive because it's true. Because their deeply held ideas 
are false, and he can demonstrate to them using their own scriptures that they got it wrong. He uses the scriptures to show that it's been the Jewish people standing in opposition to God. He uses it to explain to them that the temple that they revere as the single place on earth where God is, the place that marks them out as God's special people, is no longer the place they thought it was. That God has now opened up his kingdom to everyone, whether they're Jewish or not. In fact, he shows them that they have rejected God altogether and that God's kingdom is not what they thought it was. And for that, they kill him. And you know, it's not like this is the first time they've done this because if you read the Old Testament, all the prophets of the Old Testament say similar things to them and a lot of them get killed for it too. Jesus even makes jokes about it in the Gospels. When his life is in danger, when he's outside Jerusalem, he makes jokes that he can't die yet because they only kill prophets in Jerusalem. He had a dark sense of humor. They can't handle having their deepest convictions challenged. And what if that's true for us? If you read the Bible and you aren't offended by some parts of it, you probably aren't paying attention. I spent all last week trying to decide how offensive to be today. Um, (laughs) You know, I could stand up here and I could preach about abortion or same-sex marriage or immigration, and I could say things that are all 100% true to what's in the gospel, and in doing so I could probably deeply offend every person in this room. Whether you're conservative or liberal, I could do it. And I know because I spent all last week thinking about whether or not that was a good idea. (laughs) But I like my job. And we're about to go eat a meal together, and I thought maybe we should be on good terms when I do that. So I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Instead, I'm just going to focus on Stephen and on the early Christians for a bit. The Jews did not like the early church. It challenged everything about their beliefs. It it challenged all their ideas about who the Messiah would be and who God was and who they were. The very idea that someone who was crucified could have been their savior is, is horrifying and offensive. Crucifixion is like the ultimate shameful, humiliating death. We tend to downplay the 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 bad side of the crucifixion because we want to exalt it. It's this great moment for us, but but Crucifixion was the ultimate symbol of Roman power. You crucified rebels because it sent a message to everyone who was watching that this is what happens when you challenge Rome. You die publicly and painfully, naked and weak. All honor gone, all pride gone. The idea that someone who was crucified is the Savior, no. They're going to reject that. The idea that God would become human, no, they're going to reject that. And above all, the idea idea that all these promises that God made in the Old Testament have now been fulfilled and there's a new covenant, they can't handle that either. 
And so the first several waves of persecution against the church don't come from Rome. They come from the Jewish people. The great irony being that none of the early Christians thought of themselves as Christians. They thought of themselves as Jews. Peter and Paul and James, through their dying day, thought of themselves as faithful Jewish men, not as Christians. So the Jews didn't like the early church, but the Romans didn't like them either. And to understand why you need a quick history lesson, so get ready. In 40 BC, Julius Caesar is killed on March 15th. And shortly before he dies, he named his nephew Octavian his heir and his successor, adopting him as his son. Two years later, in 42 BC, or 38 BC, two years after his assassination, the Roman Senate named Julius Caesar a god. Which would then mean that his, his adopted son, his former nephew, is the son of a god. So Octavian would change his name to Caesar Augustus, who you might recognize as the person who initiated the census that sent Joseph and Mary to the village of Bethlehem. But his full title, his official title was Caesar Augustus Divifilius. Caesar Augustus, the son of God. So you can see that the Christians might be playing with fire when they start talking about how the Son of God was crucified on a tree and it's not the guy in Rome, it's this guy over here. But it goes a bit deeper than that because by the time that the events in Acts are taking place, there is a new religion in the Roman Empire worshiping Julius Caesar and his descendants. And this cult of Caesar is by far the fastest growing religion in the world. It's taken off like wildfire. It's everywhere and it's spreading rapidly and it wins converts by the thousands every day. It is every bit as heated and passionate as the early churches. And it has the full backing, the full might of the military and the economy of the Roman Empire behind it. And everything about the Christian faith challenges that. Because the Christians are saying that, no, Julius Caesar is not a god. He's just a man who you guys killed and then said was God. And doesn't that seem a little suspicious that you killed him and then called him a god? And it says, no, Caesar Augustus is not the son of God. Jesus, who you killed, is the son of God. And, and unlike the god you worship, when this one died, he came back. At every step of the way, the Christians are a threat to the politics and the religion of Rome. Everything they say is deeply offensive, first to the Jewish people and then to the non-Jewish people. And so eventually they'll have no safe harbor to go to. No one wants to protect them. They tick off everybody. See, all too often we are willing to reject the gospel in favor of our preferred politics of our preferred truths about the world. And we all know that I'm just scratching the surface of the issues I could talk about. I think we all know that I could probably spend a month preaching about the things that could make us all angry. Because there are just so many. The gospel is offensive. It, it, it challenges us at every turn precisely because it is not human in origin. It demands that we reject human ideas 
which have become so entrenched in our hearts and minds. It demands that we live counterculturally and that we support and advocate for things that will make us unpopular. And it also demands that that we put ourselves last. You could say the gospel will actually demand of times that you would be willing to set aside your own rights in favor of someone else. Something which is very difficult for most Americans to truly comprehend. That, that actually our rights are not sacrosanct, that, that others matter more than our own personal individual rights. But that's at the core of the gospel. That's literally what it means that when Jesus says that true love is laying down your life for another. That you're willing to give up anything for the love of your neighbor. The love of God. And it also demands an unflinching adherence to the truth. Demands that we proclaim the truth even when the truth is unpopular and people won't like us for sharing it. The gospel is all about grace and truth, but see what's happened more often than not is that conservatives have embraced truth at the expense of grace and progressives have embraced grace at the expense of truth. Both sides get half the message. The gospel is offensive. And it demands that we question our most deeply cherished beliefs and we ask ourselves if they really are in alignment with God's will or not. See, the world wants to to package all the issues we talk about into little nice, easy to understand, discrete, liberal ideas and conservative ideas, right? So that we know that if you say you stand here on one issue, we know where you stand on everything. It's supposed to be the case that if you say you're pro-life, then you're also pro-gun, opposed to same-sex marriage, you don't like immigration, you want a wall at the border, and all these other things. But the bizarre thing is, none of those have anything to do with one another. They are not related in the slightest. And it works both ways. We want everything to be a package deal. But my friends, if you try to force Scripture into these man-made ideological camps, you're going to be really confused. It doesn't work that way. And I am more convinced now than ever that Christians have to get comfortable living in between those labels of liberal and conservative. Our world tells us that we have to choose, right? We can be one or the other. We can't be both. And if you, if you disagree with us on one issue, then you're automatically in the other camp and you're a traitor and we hate you. And don't you see that playing out in the news every single day? Don't you see it on social media every single day? But the gospel of Jesus Christ rejects that idea altogether. In the Bible, you'll find teachings that have strong rebukes for both liberalism and conservatism. And the thing is, if we can't see that, we've lost our way. We are really good at spotting where the Bible critiques the people we disagree with. We can do that all day long. We are really bad at seeing where the Bible is critiquing our own views. And I want to suggest that actually we willingly blind ourselves to those moments. 
But when we do that, we're really not much better than the people who stoned Stephen to death for daring to speak the truth. I said last week that we have a chance as the church to be a light in the darkness, to show the world that there is a different way to show God's love and mercy and compassion to a world that desperately needs it. You know, we don't live in a perfect country because we aren't perfect people and the founding fathers are not perfect men. But I do think there, there are plenty of historians out there who spent their lives reading those documents and reading the writings of those men who will tell you that there were a lot of the founding fathers who understood as they were writing the Declaration of Independence that things like slavery were not compatible with the ideals they laid out in that declaration. They simply understood that what they were writing was not a descriptive document detailing what the country already was. It was an aspirational document, setting forth ideals that the country would have to live up to later on. The gospel, too, is an aspirational document. It obviously does not describe the way we already are. It describes what we are to strive to be. Over the history of our country, the church has had moments where it did incredible great things and moments where it did things that were less than good. You know, the temperance movement was, was driven largely by evangelicals. Now, just pause for a minute and think about how much social and political power the evangelical had to church to get alcohol banned. Right? It, it's one of the most lucrative and popular industries in the world. They got it banned. Imagine that level of political power and influence and then stop and think about the fact that with that much power, the church banned alcohol instead of taking on Jim Crow. Because you have to think, if they had the power to do that, they probably could have ended segregation right then and there. And they chose not to. In fact, the idea didn't even occur to them. Think about that for a minute. Think about that profound failure of the American church to live out the gospel. But you know, it was also the church that, that shaped so much of the civil rights movement. It was, it was the church that led the charge for the abolition of slavery. Not all of it. There were always churches and Christians who were opposed to those things, but by and large, it, it was... God's people, it was Christians, it was the church leading the charge for those things. It was churches that decided that, that we should build things like hospitals so that the sick and the injured would have a place to go where they could be healed. It was the church that decided that we ought to start opening up schools that anybody could attend so everyone could get an education. So many of these things that we've turned over to the government since were originally created by churches for the good of the people. And in fact, the, the very ideals that are laid out in the Declaration of Independence that are aspirational ideals for the whole country, whether they knew it or not, those are lifted straight out of Christian thought. The very idea that all men are created equal and endowed with God-given rights, that's ours. That idea does not exist anywhere in the world before the spread of Christianity. Christianity. 
So the church has not always lived up to the ideals set forth in the gospel, just like our nation has not always lived up to the ideals set forth in the Declaration of Independence. But in a very real way, the church has been a force for good in our society. And the times when our nation has come the closest to living up to those ideals are the times when the church has also come closest to living up to the ideals set forth in the gospel. We have been the driving force that has made the world a better place in so many ways. We can be proud of that even as we acknowledge all the ways in which we've also failed to do that job. Because we can understand that we're human and we make mistakes. My friends, we can do that again. We have a chance again to, to be a church that makes the world a better place. But to do that, we're going to have to get uncomfortable. We're going to have to actually question our beliefs in the light of the gospel. You know, I've, I've been listening to a song over and over again this past week where the opening line is, maybe we'll get to heaven and realize we were both wrong. And it struck me because we don't often consider that. We don't often consider that. We might be wrong about some things. Instead, we tend to dig in our heels and be stubborn and, and cling even more tightly to our ideas instead of actually questioning them. And look, I'm not saying that, that our convictions don't matter or that we shouldn't be bold in our beliefs, because we should, but we should also be humble in recognizing that we might be wrong about some things. And no matter how sure we are of the things we're right about, we can't ever be 100% certain. I can tell you I spent the last 10 years of my life doing pretty much nothing but studying and teaching the Bible. And, and even, even though there is a core of things that have not changed in those 10 years about what I believe, even there, the things I, that I believe about how those beliefs shape the way I live my life and the way I treat others and talk to others, that has shifted. Because there is always more to learn. My friends, we have to be willing to take our most deeply held convictions and hold them up to the light. We don't need to be afraid of that. But we have to be willing to actually question ourselves and make sure we're still on the right path. Because our own history shows that it's very easy for the church to be led astray. Even as there were churches that were championing the fight to end slavery, there were churches that existed for the sole purpose of upholding it. Do you know why there is an African Methodist Episcopal Church? Because the Methodist church at the time wouldn't let the black people in. Our own history shows that we can make mistakes. The church as a whole can make mistakes and be led off course. If we're not willing to question our own most deeply held assumptions about the gospel, about truth, we run the risk of falling off the path. If we aren't willing to reject these camps that our society wants to force us into, liberal versus conservative, 
we're going to be in trouble. Because the gospel does not fit completely into either one of those ideas. Christians have to represent something different. Because the gospel is something different. But to get there, we're going to have to let ourselves be offended sometimes. And we're going to have to be okay with that. And what we're really going to have to ask ourselves is not what do I think, not what does this party think or what does that party think, but what does Jesus think? Because that's really all that matters. The gospel is offensive. And there are things we're all going to find as we read Scripture that bother us and trouble us. And that's okay. It's okay to struggle with those ideas and wrestle with them. What's not okay is just to turn a blind eye to the parts you don't like. If we're going to be the light in the darkness, we're going to have to allow ourselves to be offended from time to time. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.